We're continuing our series, Parables on the Road to Calvary till Easter. We've been working through different parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're making a shift in terms of where we are in the story that Matthew gives us in the Gospel. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's sometimes called the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in with great fanfare, and the crowd is all behind him and supporting him. And over the next few weeks, we'll skip this for Mission Emphasis Week, but over the next few weeks, as we continue to look toward Good Friday and Easter, we're going to be reading parables that Jesus tells us between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. So these are stories that Jesus told on the week that he was looking toward his death to deliver us. This morning, we'll be reading from Matthew 21. We'll read from verse 33 to 46. Let's read. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's word for us this morning. James Veach has made a comedic career out of responding to spam emails and then telling stories about it. So he gets lots of spam email like all of us, and then he responds to it. And he tries to draw these spammers in to, to waste their time, to get them engaged with this story that he spins. So once he got an email from Solomon saying, James, I have a business proposal for you. And James emails back, I'm, I'm fascinated, tell me more. And Solomon responds with, I would like to ship you 50 pounds of gold for you to dispose of. All I need is about $1,500 in fees for processing. And they go back and forth a couple times. And then James says, you know, Solomon, if we're going to do this, let's go big. We, w there's no reason to do this unless you ship me a ton of gold. And there's this pause of a few days. And Solomon comes back with, what kind of job do you have? Well, I'm an investment manager, hedge fund, blah, 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 blah. Makes up a whole story. And then after a couple more emails back and forth, James tells Solomon that they're going to go ahead with this, but they need to start communicating in code. And he sends Solomon this code. A lawyer equals a gummy bear. 
A bank is a cream egg. A legal document is fizzy cola jelly beans. A money transfer is peanut M&Ms. And Western Union is a giant gummy lizard. Don't worry if you didn't follow the details. They're not that important. But James insists that Solomon uses this code. And Solomon emails back without it. And James says, no, no, no. You have to use the code. And he waits a few days. And finally, Solomon sends this email. I am trying to raise the balance for the gummy bear so he can submit all the needed fizzy cola jelly beans to the cream egg for the peanut M&M's process to start. Send $1,500 via a giant gummy lizard. Priceless email. Now James starts out, he has all kinds of different poise. He starts out with this normal enough story. He presents like a regular victim, kind of a clueless person who's up for an investment thing. But then he just keeps going and he keeps building the stories in all kinds of different ways until they are just out of control. And you have to figure at some point, the spammers on the other end realize this, this guy isn't serious. This isn't, this isn't real. But they go along for a long, long ways sometimes before they finally turn on him. And James has done this with different groups. A couple times he's actually gotten spammers to email him and say, please stop emailing us. Please stop emailing us. And that is success for him. Now, in our text for today, Jesus, he has a different goal in mind, but he adopts a strategy a little bit like James's strategy. He starts out with a normal enough story, and then it goes crazier and crazier as he continues to draw his audience in. In the story, the landowner plants a vineyard. He puts a wall around it, he digs a wine press, he builds a watchtower. He does all the things that someone would need to do to have a successful vineyard. But in that time, it often took four or five years for a vineyard to be productive. So this is apparently a wealthy guy, he can afford the investment, but he doesn't want to spend years waiting around to see how it turns out. So he hires some tenants. He rents out the vineyard to some farmers to tend it. And these people agree that they'll work the vineyard for a number of years. And then once the harvests start coming in, they'll give the owner a certain amount of the profit and they'll keep a certain amount of the harvest. The amounts differed a bit, but this was so far a totally standard arrangement. Now these are especially wicked tenants as we'll discover through the course of Jesus' story. But there was often tension there, just like there is in any situation between farm owners and tenant workers. The owners always want to maximize their profit. The owners always want a bit more. You know, they put in this investment, they want to get their money back out. And the tenants, the people out there in the sun and watching out for the vineyard day after day, night after night, they start to feel some ownership for the place as time goes by. And they start to think, man, I have put so much work into this place. I really should get more out of it than what our arrangement was. And you know, if I just bought this thing, I would be better off because otherwise I'm going to be paying rent forever. There's always this built-in tension there, right? Now, the time comes that the owner sends the servants, and usually there was some tension there with, you know, people wanting different amounts. So it was common to have some back and forth, that the owner would have to send the servants, they'd go back to them, and they'd renegotiate, and it'd work out after two or three times back and forth, and there'd be some arguments and maybe a, maybe a little bit of a threat or a blow or two, but it all worked out. So far, this is a totally normal story for the time. But then the story escalates. The tenants don't just argue with the servants. They don't throw out a threat or two. They don't throw a punch or two. They take the servants of the owner, the first time he sends servants, and they kill them all. They beat them to the point of death. They stone them. They, 
they kill the whole group. And then the owner sends more servants, and they get treated the same way. They get beat up. They get thrown out of the vineyard. They get killed. So finally, the owner sends his own servant or his own son. And when they see the son coming, the tenants say, let's kill him. Because if we kill the one who the vineyard's going to belong to, then the vineyard will belong to us. And to us, this sounds crazy, but to the people of the time, to the people hearing Jesus' parable, this would have been ridiculous beyond belief. At this point in the story, this has completely departed from the realm of what was possible and probable. People did not do this. People would never get away with doing this. This is crazy. But still, the tenants have gotten all wrapped up in their own plans and their own greed, and so they do it. They take hold of the owner's son, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And at this point in the parable, when the story is just out of control, Jesus turns to his audience and he asks the setup question. When the owner of the vineyard comes, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to those tenants? And up to this point, Jesus' audience is tracking with this whole thing. And they think the tenants are terrible people, unbelievably evil. They do not deserve that vineyard. They do not deserve to live. And so in verse 41, the people respond by saying, the owner is going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And then he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants, to those who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. And as near as we can tell, at that point, Jesus' audience thought the, parable, thought the parable was about the Roman authorities. They thought the parable was about those other people out there, about the powers and the nations of the world who, who had misused God's world, who had abused God's people, who had not followed the Lord. And so this parable, as they're hearing it, is that God is going to pay those people back, and he's going to give the world, he's going to give the vineyard to us. Those bad people are going to get what they deserve, and we're going to get what God wants to give to his beloved people. Jesus has them pulled in, and now comes the twist in the story. And Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage that turns the table on his audience. Matthew 21, 42 is a quote from Psalm 118, and it goes, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And as Jesus' first audience heard that first line, their eyes probably would have narrowed, and they would have come to realize that they'd been, they'd been taken in. And then Jesus goes on, and he makes it explicit, and he tells them, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It will be taken away from you and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now with that stone imagery, Jesus is bringing together a number of images. The capstone, the stone that's talked about there, could mean a lot of things, but one of the meanings was kind of the stone you put on top to hold everything together. And people spent a lot of time on their roofs those days, so it's very possible that you'd bump this stone and it'd fall off and it'd kill somebody in the street. Or you wouldn't be paying attention, you'd trip over it, and you'd go flying off the edge of your roof, and you would fall to the street and die. 
This is a stone that would trip up the unwary, that would destroy those who didn't give it its due care. And at this point, the audience, and especially the religious leaders, they get it. They get that Jesus is saying that they are the wicked tenants, not the people out there, not, not them, but the leaders themselves. They're the ones on the way to punishment. And ironically, they don't respond real well to this. The last couple of verses of our text for today says that those religious leaders, they act just like the wicked tenants. They go out and they plot how they can kill Jesus, how they can get rid of the son. Now, as I've read this parable over the years, and as I prepared for this sermon, one of my first thoughts was, oh, those terrible people back then, those terrible religious leaders, how did they not get it? How did they not see this one coming? How did they not see themselves in this parable? And then I thought about our world and our culture and how people minimize Jesus, how they try to undermine the truth that we find in the Bible, how they say none of that matters and how they get it all wrong. But really, this parable isn't just about the people out there. The parable isn't about those other people who are getting it all wrong. The parable is about us. We are the wicked tenants. We are the ones who keep fighting against God's ways. Too often, we are the ones who refuse to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. Too often, we put our own plans ahead of God's plans. Too often, we ignore or we even strike out against the Lord. So when Jesus comes and he tells us parables like this through the scriptures, how do we respond? Are we like his original audience? Are we like the religious people back then who thought, oh, those bad people out there. But then when it comes home, we reject what Jesus has to say. Do we get defensive? Do we try to silence the word of the Lord in our lives? And as I wrestled with this text this week, the answer in my life is often yes. Often when I really hear the word of the Lord speak to me with conviction and power, I try to, try to hush it up or edge around it. One response when we get that we're the wicked tenants is like those religious leaders, is to get angry and to be in denial. But that's really a dead end. You can get mad at God as much as you want, but you know he's right. And another response, and this might be the one that's more common for us, is despair. We know we can't be good enough. We know there's more we should be doing, but we're tired. We're overwhelmed. Life is already hard enough as it is, and we don't know where we would find more time or more energy to do more. And so when we hear parables like this that should convict us, we just kind of we just kind of shrug it off because what more can we do anyway? Now, I don't think Jesus told this parable just to get people angry or depressed. Maybe sometimes we have to go through those stages to really hear what he has to say, but I think really this is a parable where we can find hope. In the end, it's a parable of hope. Now, to get at the hope that Jesus is showing here, we need to focus on the sun and the stone in this text. And the sun and the stone together give us hope. 
And actually, in the original language of this parable, in the story that Jesus would have told, sun and stone were almost the same. They were only one letter different. Sun was ben, stone was eben. Ben and aben, sun and stone. So in this story, we should hear the sun and the stone are the same person, and that person is Jesus. And these two images can show us how Jesus brings us hope. First, the image of the sun. In this parable, that owner is tremendously gracious and patient. After his first servants got done away with, he should have sent an angry mob to kill those wicked tenants. That would have been totally acceptable and normal and expected in his time. But instead, he sends more servants. And after that, he sends his own son. It's an act of tremendous grace. And to be honest with you, it also seems kind of foolish. I mean, really. These are people who have killed his servants, and now he's going to send his son? Now, in the culture of the time, it would have been just unthinkable to kill the son of the owner of the place you were renting. Unthinkable! But given what these wicked tenants have done, does the father get what he's sending his son to do? Does he know what's good? Does he know what he's doing here? Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this is a parable that Jesus tells us between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. This is a parable that Jesus tells in the week leading up to his death. And as he stood there and told this parable, he was looking into the eyes of the people who were going to have him killed. He was looking into the eyes of people who had been fans of him up to that point, but they were going to turn on him and demand his death. That's his audience. So yes, God the Father knew. God the Father knew exactly what he was sending his son into. He knew that he was sending his son to be murdered. And Jesus, the son, he knew that too. He knew that his mission was to die. And still Jesus came. Still Jesus came to save us. He came to be arrested and beaten. He came to be put through a joke of a trial. He came to be forced to haul his own cross outside the city and to be killed out there. The Son came to save us wicked tenants. In this story, Jesus is telling us that the Son has come to save us. Jesus is saying to his audience, you wicked, stubborn, angry, crazy people, I have come to save you. I have come to show God's love to you. And Jesus gives us that picture even as he's talking to the people who are going to kill him in just a few days. This is a wonder and this is a marvel. And this is almost a miracle in its own right. That Jesus came to save us broken people. That Jesus came to save us humans who were going to kill him for his trouble. The Father and the Son knew what they were getting into, and still Jesus came to save us. And as he's telling this story, yes, Jesus is challenging his audience, and yes, he's putting them in an awkward spot, but he's also saying to them, because I love you, I have come to be killed by you in order 
to save you. Please, Jesus is saying through this story, please repent. Please turn. Please change. Please accept my work on your behalf. And now let's talk about that stone image. Jesus identifies himself with that stone. He says that just like that cornerstone, he's been rejected. But that cornerstone or that stone will become the cornerstone, the capstone. And again, that's a word that can mean a lot of things. But basically, it's the stone that holds the whole thing together. It's the stone that you put at the corner that holds all the walls into place. It's the thing that you put that holds the arch up. It is the most important part of the building. Without that stone, everything falls apart. With it, everything holds together. And so Jesus is saying, without me at the center, without me at the cornerstone of your life, everything will fall apart. But if you put me at the center, everything will hang together. And Jesus tells us that he's creating a new, a new people, a new nation. He's bringing the old tenants and the new tenants, anyone who will believe in him, he is bringing them together to be a new people who belong to God. The Son of God, the cornerstone of the kingdom, invites us to experience his grace and to enter his kingdom. But to do that, we need to take a completely different approach to our lives. To do that, we need Jesus to rebuild us, to break us down and to rebuild us with him as the cornerstone of our lives. When we were living in the bush in Africa, way out in the middle of nowhere, I once had some trouble with the starter on my pickup, so we had to push start it for a few days, and push starting a truck gets really old really fast. So after a few days of that, a friend and I went into the local town to get the starter fixed up. And we drove to the sort of the taxi stop, the bus stop, and there was a row of mechanic shops along the edge of it. I used the word mechanic shops there loosely. They were shacks with a bunch of stuff in them. And we drove up to the starter and electrical repair expert. And he went and he looked at the truck and he said, well, yeah, okay, I, I see the problem. I can fix it. I can fix it. You can be on the road in just a few minutes. And I think, great. And my friend who's along with me says, wait, wait, how long will that repair last? And the mechanic says, I don't know, but you can start it right now. See, his usual clientele was taxi guys who ran back and forth between two big towns, and often, especially at the beginning of the day, they didn't have much money. So they just wanted enough of a fix that they could start their car and drive to the other town where the next mechanic could fix it again so they could drive back, and maybe by the end of the day, they'd have enough to actually do a good fix. But all they wanted right now was, will it start the first time I turn the key right now? So we have this discussion with the mechanic that we don't want the quick fix. We want a real fix. We want something that will keep working today, tomorrow, next year would be great. And the mechanic sort of looks at us weird and then says, okay. And he takes the starter out and he brings it back to his shop, which is a maybe eight by six foot, just little shack with all kinds of electrical parts in it. And he puts the starter down in his workbench. He takes it completely apart and he starts fiddling with different pieces. And every now and then he goes and he takes some little piece out of another part in his shop and puts it on, takes it off, puts a different one on. And we wait for a while. And he basically rebuilds this whole starter from scratch. And then he takes it, he puts it back on the truck. And as he's looking around, he realizes there's another electrical problem. 
So he goes into his shop and he comes back with a knife and a roll of wire and some tape. And he says, I'll fix this for you, just a minute. And we have the same conversation we had before. How long will that fix last? Well, I don't know, but it'll work right now. Well, I want a real fix. And again, he kind of looks at his funny. Okay. And he takes more pieces off and he brings them back to his shop. And again, he takes them all the way apart. He strips them down to the very component pieces and he takes other pieces off the wall and digs through piles and comes up with different pieces and rebuilds the whole thing. And then finally, he puts that back on the truck and everything works great. The truck starts better than it had before and we never had trouble with it again. So often in our lives, we just want the quick fix. We just want to get back on the road again. We just want Jesus to help us out a little bit with the details so that we can work out our plan for our lives. We have our own ideas about how things could go and we want God to just just make it a little bit better. Just a little bit better. Just get me back on the road for today. But that's not how God works. God doesn't want to come to us. He doesn't want to come to you and just make your life a little bit better. God wants something more for all of us. God wants and God intends to completely transform us. He wants to make us completely right. But the only way for God to make us completely right is for him to break us down and then rebuild us. We've all built our lives in kind of helter-skelter ways that don't really work, that will fall apart. And Jesus comes to us and he takes all that apart And then with him as the cornerstone, he rebuilds our lives so that they can last for eternity. So I'm not trying to add something new to your religious to-do list today. The good news of the gospel is easier and harder than telling us to try more or do something different. The easier part is that Jesus has done it all for us. Jesus has done everything that we need to be right with God. He has taken away our guilt. He has paid our debt. In Christ Jesus, we are right with God. Period. Full stop. In Jesus Christ, we are right with God. That's the easy part. But the hard part is that if if Jesus is really in our lives, then he is going to break us down and rebuild us. This is not a quick patch a couple things up in my life and get me back on the road. This is God working with the deepest issues of our hearts and transforming transforming them bit by bit. And at times, that's going to be hard and painful. God will break down the houses of cards that we build up for ourselves. He will challenge our idols. He will remake our hearts. He will take everything apart as far as it needs to go in order to build us back up the way we were designed to be. If we make Jesus the cornerstone of our lives, he will wreck some things in our lives. But he will always, in the end, rebuild us to be better. God is not making things better for us for the next year or two. God is rebuilding us for eternity. He is at work in us to change everything in us forever. So as we listen to these parables from Jesus today, which way will we go? 
But we try to hold on to the vineyard, to hold on to our own power and our own plans and fight off the power of God? Or do we, do we give ourselves to Jesus? Do we give ourselves to the Son of God who died for us and let him break us down and build us back up? When we put aside our own plans and we embrace God's kingdom, he transforms us. When we build on Christ, he gives us more than we could ever have anticipated or expected. If we follow the sun, we find true life. If we build on the stone, we find true hope. The Lord has done this, and the Lord continues to do it, and it is marvelous. May it be marvelous in all of our eyes and all of our hearts.